Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Chris Murphy. Chris is a paracyclist and a two-time Paralympian and he's recently returned from the World Championships of Track Cycling with a silver medal around his neck. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you, Liz. It's great to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, your impairment, and how you got into paracycling? Yeah, I guess I can start with my impairment because it happened at birth. It's a birth injury. Mm-hmm. It's called Herb's palsy, brachial plexus palsy. Essentially, what happened is that I had a difficult birth where my shoulder got stuck in the birth canal on the way out. It's a scenario called shoulder dystocia, mm-hmm. where essentially the doctor pulled on my head to get me out and that pulled my shoulder and it stretched the nerves that feed into my left shoulder. And then that permanently damaged those nerves. Mm-hmm. I've had limited function in my left arm for my whole life. Um, I have function, which I'm grateful for, but pretty much everything it, that your arm can do is affected. So strength, range of motion, sensation. Sensation is probably the weirdest one because mm-hmm. I can break a bone in my left arm and not know it, which mm-hmm. is almost a superpower when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, Absolutely. Um, Most people would appreciate not being able to feel something like that. <laughs> yeah, but in practical terms, it turns out it's actually a really good thing to understand when you've broken a bone. Um <laughs> So that that's what I have in my left arm. Like I said, it's called Herb's palsy. It's not super well known, but it's more common than you might think. Um, I think a notable actor that actually has it is Martin Sheen. All right. Okay. Um, yeah. So I mean, you never know just by watching him, uh, unless you know, then you can see how he moves, and you can kind of see how he avoids letting the cameras make that obvious mm-hmm. okay. me personally i did not have an athletic background growing up like i said i had this since birth and my mom was actually pretty overprotective of me and didn't really let me do things that she thought i might hurt myself doing mm-hmm. so i can't really say that i you know grew up playing sports or anything like that i wanted to but uh, just that's not how the cards were dealt. I did learn to play music, though. And I, part of my what I consider my core identity is being a musician. And, you know, I started that in middle school. I did well in high school. I majored in it in college. I mm. did that pretty well. And even after college, I lived as a professional musician. I was a freelancer for a while in Southern California. Mm. I got to do a lot of cool things with it. I got to be in a movie, a Warner Brothers movie as an extra. Oh, cool. And I also got to work at Disneyland as a musician in a few different capacities over a few years. So mm-hmm. it was all fun. And I felt like it was a huge just experience for me, a very formative experience for me, mm-hmm. just the people I met and the person I basically turned into had a lot to do with being a musician. And at a certain point, I actually started getting some overuse injuries in my good arm, Mm. uh, my right arm. And at that point, I was thinking about, you know, I was just researching herbs palsy because I grew up not really even understanding what it was. To be completely honest, when I was a really little kid, I just thought I was extremely right-handed. You know, like I saw it as a spectrum, you know, and I, I didn't think I was, I had something actually medically wrong with me i just like no i just i'm very right-handed yeah that's kind of how i was raised to just do things on my own it was never really a thought in my head and really the first time i had heard the term herbs palsy was when i was i think i was 16 Mm -hmm. Um, i just moved in with my dad and i was a senior in high school and he was just you know, just looking at me and my age and he's thinking, uh, you know, if there's a draft, you know, military draft, just remember the phrase herbs palsy. You know? And ah. I asked him, what is that? And he said, well, that's what's wrong with your arm. And that was about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Tell uh, me more. Yeah, that, uh, that was it. And I mean, I grew up, I mean, before the internet was readily available and my parents didn't have access to the information that's available now so like they were largely in the dark when i was growing up with this Mm -hmm. and 
it, it just was what it was. It was different, a different time. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to post-college, I was having some issues with my right arm. Then I started doing more diving into what herbs palsy was mm -hmm. on Google. And in doing that, I actually came across some article on an Australian paracyclist uh, named Michael Gallagher. Mm -hmm. And he is uh, herbs palsy as well. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And the timing was interesting too, because about six months prior to that point, I I bought a bike. I bought a road bike to commute to work. I was just working like part-time, a part-time job in some random mail room. But I had to drive there and I just hated the traffic that I had to sit. <laughs> and Fair enough. Yeah. And I just remember one day I was sitting in my car, just wanted to go home, not going home because I was sitting in traffic. And this guy's Ironman triathlete and a tri bike just zips by me in the bike lane. And I'm like, that looks like such a better use of my time. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, so I, I bought a bike that weekend. And that was actually a big step for me, too, because I actually need to back up a little more in that. You know, I learned to ride a bike when I was a kid, like most people do. But when I was 10 years old, I remember one time I was riding my bike around where my dad lives, which is the foothills of the mountain. So I was going straight downhill on this bike that didn't have handbrakes. It was just a fixed geared bike. Yep. With the old I, back, back pedal to put the brake yep. on. Yep. yep, exactly. But I didn't have a firm understanding of how that worked when you gained enough momentum and speed and I could not stop. So I ended up crashing and breaking my arm, my good arm. So <laughs> that was a very traumatic experience. I was in a cast for, I think, I think just four weeks that time. But anyway, that month being in a cast with my good arm was very traumatic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I actually stopped riding my bike just because I didn't want anything to happen like that ever again yeah. yeah so i just didn't ride a bike at all until i got to college and then at a certain point economics came into the frame of mind because where i went to school parking was extremely expensive it was mm -hmm. like 300 dollars a semester and i lived i i rented at a room out of a house a couple miles away and i was like i just can't justify spending 300 dollars just to park my car when i could just get a bike and mm -hmm ride my bike and I ended up doing that but it was it turned out to be a growing experience for myself psychologically much more than I anticipated because mm -hmm. I never thought I had a phobia about riding a bike but I definitely did once I got the bike uh, and tried to get on it to commute and it, it was a uh, yeah it was it was good personal growth uh, for mm -hmm. sure and that was when I was about 20. So it was about 10 years of not riding a bike whatsoever. Mm. But then to get back to where we were in the story, I was about 25, I think, when I started having these overuse injuries. And then I learned about Michael Gallagher. And mm. at that point, it was six months prior that I bought a bike to commute. And I had actually started realizing how much fun I thought riding a bike was. You know, and I, I, would, I was actually riding at night, not commuting, just because nighttime was really the only time at that time of year that it was cool enough to ride. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know, it was crazy almost thinking about it in retrospect, but I'd like leave at 10 o'clock at night to go on a bike ride. Because <laughs> literally, it's also that was the, the only probably time. the safest time to ride in, in LA yeah. area, just in terms of. Yeah, exactly. Traffic, traffic was very minimal. <laughs> But yeah, I, had, I was having a really fun time riding my bike at that point. It was both economically sound, is keeping my mental health in a good place, and I was just having fun. And it was really one of the first things I'd started doing outside of playing music that I thought was just intrinsically fun. Yeah. So when I learned about Michael Gallagher and paracycling, that was the first time I'd ever heard of paracycling. So I just started looking that up and I was like, oh, this is bike racing. And I just started considering, it's like, well, I live as a freelance musician, so I don't, you know, I have a part-time job, but I actually have a lot of free time, no responsibility. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to just try racing my bike and just seeing how I do. Mm -hmm. you know? And I basically approached riding my bike like I did playing 
trombone it's my instrument so i was like well you, there's fundamentals that you have to learn uh, you have to put time in you know just mm -hmm. i just went at it the only way that i really knew how mm. and yeah it was i took to it pretty well i started showing up to the saturday group ride at a local bike shop learning as much as i could from everybody that was there they were super encouraging i let them know what my goals were and mm. at that time my goals was you know just to explore what paracycling was i didn't really know <laughs> um, and this is all road riding so that's how i got introduced to competing on a bike and I, I did pretty well in my first season racing when I got to that I won state time trial championship and then I got third in the state road race championship a couple weeks after that mm. so I was like oh this is fun I'm gonna I like this so I s actually signed up to go to paracycling national championships U.S. championships just to like see what it was about and you know just ex expose myself to the organization essentially mm -hmm. and my first nationals i got three silver medals in every race i did basically the time trial the road race and the criterium yeah. it wasn't a spectacular performance by any means it didn't you know <laughs> i was not on the radar to go to world championships or anything like that but yeah. it was at least enough to get on the radar of the national team that like i had some potential as a as a bike rider mm. and um, had you been classified at that point nationally classified mm -hmm. yes so my category is c5 yep. so of the cycling categories the upright bike categories one through five five you would consider the least disabled mm -hmm. or at least the most physically functional most physically able and it's generally like when you have one upper body impairment that's yep. where they would put you mm -hmm. so yeah i got nationally classified was on the radar and it was basically mission accomplished as far as what I had set out to do, just show up and, yeah. you know, just see what see it was. See where you were at, yeah, yeah benchmark like, yourself. Yeah, yeah, and I was definitely way behind the guys that were, you know, doing well, but those guys were also, they had international experience and those, they were going to world championships and it's just how it should be essentially. Yeah. But anyway, I just, you know, had that trip. I think that was in the summertime around July 4th. So I came back and I just kept training. And then I was aware that there was going to be a, a national, another national championships for track cycling. And I was going to be in Carson, so mm -hmm. a suburb of Los Angeles. And I lived in Rancho Cucamonga at the time, which was about 45 minutes away from Carson, 45 minutes without traffic. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I've never ridden the track, but I've been over there and I've seen it, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll try it, you know? So I decided that I was gonna get certified to learn to ride the track. Mm -hmm. And around that same time, the national team reached out to me for a town identification camp in Chula Vista. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of the aim of that camp was to get prepared for track nationals. So I was like, oh, okay, this is perfect. So in, I think mid September, I started going to my first learn to ride the track, learn to ride the velodrome classes. And it's very much like driver's ed, uh, <laughs> you know, where they, they teach you the basics, you know, this, these are the basics for safety, the etiquette, mm -hmm. you know, this is how to get on and off the track safely without hurting anybody else or yourself. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot of fun. I was definitely intimidated by the banking, you know, cause like, especially in Carson, it's just, fairly steep track where I think the max banking is around 47 degrees. Mm. So it's closer to being a wall than a floor. <laughs> if you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's not a nice, not a nice floor to, to fall on either. Is it? No, no, no. I'd find out that later, <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting too, because when I walked up to the track that morning, my first learned to ride, they're actually doing Canadian junior national tryouts. And I saw these like 12 year olds killing it. And I was like, you know what, if they can do this, I can do this. So <laughs> that was my I love mindset. Your optimism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I needed to see that. And I'll be like, okay, I can do this. These little kids can do that. <laughs> yeah. So I just did my first learn to ride class and I was honestly pretty scared about falling so I just went really fast because <laughs> you know if you go fast you don't upright. fall yeah yeah <laughs> and I just remember they let us go around on the track um, right at the blue line and I just 
I was having fun. I was kind of scared, but I was also having fun, but also kind of scared. It was just this loop that was feeding itself. And I just was going pretty fast. And I ended up like lapping the group that I was in several, you know, like three or four times before they called us down. So it was fun. Um, They're like, <laughs> whoa. yeah. And part of it was just like a little bit of bike fitness, but it was mostly like nervous energy. <laughs> But I, I had a really good time. I finished my track certification, I think, the third week. And then I drove immediately to Chula Vista to do my talent identification camp. And that was a very interesting camp format because half of the camp was talent ID and the other half was national team. And there were some aspects where we intermixed and there were other aspects where they separated us, you know. And... The first couple of days, I was definitely, you know, I was in the, I was in the beginner group, you know, the talent ID group, but I was doing, well, I, I mean, I think I was doing really well in that by the end of the second day, the coach, the head coach, Andy, he uh, talked to me and he promoted me to train with the national team group. So I switched over and then started training with the heavy hitters. And that was definitely like trial by fire. <laughs> Because Scott Martin, I'm sure you remember Scott, but like Scott was, he was a great bike rider. And especially around this time was, you know, when he was approaching, yeah, approaching his best. Yeah. And here I was, Andy starts me uh, just doing grudge matches with Scott. <laughs> you oh, know, man, like head to head. that's just yep. so mean. <laughs> yep, that was my introduction to, uh, <laughs> to paracycling. Hang in, hang in as long as you can. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like racing the fastest guy on the national team. <laughs> so, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And I, I mean, I had the right temperament for it. Cause like, I remember that day, I think, you know, like he caught me in a pursuit grudge match. He caught me right away. The next day, it took him a little bit longer to catch me. The next day, he barely caught me <laughs> before wow. we finished, yep. you know, and then the last day, he didn't actually catch me. He just beat me. <laughs> so like, I, you know, I'd proved, improved a little bit every day and I, I was just having a lot of fun and learning a lot and getting to know them. It was a really good experience. And this was all about three weeks prior to the track national championships, so it was a really good experience for me to ride the velodrome down in San Diego and just get a feel for what this racing stuff actually was and do those simulated races that we did. And I felt really prepared for the national championships. And actually, when they happened, I won the both the pursuit and the kilo wow. which was amazing to me like it was my very first national championships and i think i got third in the scratch race so wow it was, and yeah, that's it was after, a lot of fun. so serious how much serious riding had, be, had you been doing at that point in time it sounds like about six months of serious riding at that point probably about eight or nine months mm. Mm. yeah i mean mm. I've, I've been trying to figure I can't really pinpoint when I was seriously writing because it was just a you know just transition from oh I like doing this <laughs> to, to oh can I go for can I go faster or can I do yeah something? yeah yeah exactly can I get put together my you know, first shot at racing you know and I think it's in California you start racing pretty early in the year because the weather's nice and I think I started racing around mid-February that year so that's maybe you want to call that that is when I started racing. And then it was early November, I think, when we had nationals. For mm. track. Wow, what a stellar year. Yeah, so that's that's kind of how I got into paracycling and track racing. Mm. I was definitely considered myself a roadie at that time, but the track is really what got the national, national team's attention for me. And I mean, even at the time, having done my first real kilo race, the times I put up for my first race was pretty decent. And I did not understand that whatsoever. Mm. You know, was, I did like a one ten five kilo and for someone's very first kilo, like if I were to see somebody do that, I'd be like, that's pretty awesome. You know, <laughs> but at the time I was like, Oh, I don't even know what that was. That just hurt so bad. <laughs> <laughs> what is this lactate stuff that makes me want to vomit? Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, I don't know. I just, 
just go. You just go as hard as you can. And that, that's, that's always been a very appealing part of the kilo for me specifically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's how I got into paracycling. They actually opened, opened up the resident program at the training center mm-hmm. in Colorado Springs. And the coach encouraged me to apply. So I did. And it was just a good time for me. I was looking forward to not being a musician because, you know, being a musician, turning my passion into work, it turned into work. And then I slowly yeah, fell out of love with it. Yeah. yeah. So when these opportunities in cycling came up and I was having these real feelings about being a musician, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. And I uh, put in my application. They took me. And then a couple months later, I moved to Colorado Springs. Yeah. So how many years did it take before you actually qualified for Rio? Like, I moved to the Springs in the beginning of 2014. Mm. So, so two and a half years. Two and a yep. half years before Rio. Yep. Yep. And so in Rio, you raced as both track and a road cyclist, didn't you? Correct. And Until at that point, I considered myself a roadie. Mm. You know, I do have to admit that to myself these days. <laughs> but no, I was definitely a roadie. I, I was all in on, I was actually all in on the road time trial for 2016. And I was not a bad endurance time trialist, mm-hmm. uh, especially 2016. I was doing pretty well. It was actually interesting, my lead up to the games and that I broke my collarbone right before trials, like maybe three weeks before trials. Mm-hmm. And that was a case where I didn't, I broke my collarbone, but didn't, and didn't find out until five days after the fact. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nerve damage. It's a different kind of thing. <laughs> but I went to trials. I didn't tell anybody really. I raced as hard as I could. It was really painful. And I just, I didn't qualify for the team objectively. Almost did, I think. It, I wasn't far off the rating mm. list, far off the cutoff, but did not make it. So the rest of that summer, I just decided to, you know, focus on healing up. And I like riding my bikes. I just was riding my bike. I wasn't mm-hmm. training for anything. Mm-hmm. But that was also the time where the whole uh, Russian doping scandal stuff was happening. And I think it was what was it two weeks before the games i get a call from our hpd saying the court of arbitration for sport had just upheld the russian ban that the ipc had uh, instated so Mm -hmm. all their spots were being reallocated and i got one of their spots so i was like okay sweet (laughs) yeah two weeks later you're on the track yeah, exactly. Like next day, I was basically on a plane to a training camp that was already happening, <laughs> you know, just doing last minute training. And then, you know, before I know it, I'm on a plane to Rio and I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What a first inundation of, of fire for, for games. And yeah, then, yeah. So since Rio, you've decided that you're probably better focusing on one event and that event is the kilo on the track correct correct so the following year actually won my first world championships on the track and it was in the kilometer time trial and that was an interesting one too because when i performed at the championships i went a full second faster than i had ever gone mm-hmm. so like i was like oh well, i mean i wasn't going that fast at that time but it was it was still a big improvement but yeah i'd won the kilo that year and i was still i still had a a one foot you know in track and one foot in road endurance i hadn't fully committed track by then but i got my first international results on the track and then the following year I actually broke my collarbone again, right bef- like the day before track world championships, which was not good. <laughs> but when it happened, the medical staff checked me out and they told me, oh, your collarbone's not broken. And I thought about it and I thought, this feels a lot like the last time it was broken. <laughs> so with a little insisting, I uh, ended up at a Brazilian hospital and with an x-ray that said, yep, it's broken. Oh. So I did not get to compete that year, but it was just an interesting time because at that time I had pretty much switched my mental focus to, okay, I'm all in on track, mm-hmm. not no longer in on road. I was willing to do some road, but I really wanted to just focus on the track, mm-hmm. not, not specifically track kilo or track sprint, but just, you know, track because I was still mm-hmm. pursuing at that time. Yeah. And then as time went on, 
my uh, category, the times that my guys were doing just got crazy fast in the pursuit. And it's one of those things I had to come to terms with myself with in that for the amount of work that I can put in for sprint type events, uh, I got a lot more return with my body than putting the same amount of work in for the endurance. So I could... I basically got to a point where I realized I can work my butt off and get ninth place, or I can go all in on this thing and get top three. Mm. And since I've been doing that every year that I've been able to compete, you know, not had a broken bone, I've been on the podium at world championships in the kilo. So, and I kept getting faster and faster. And do you think that, the fact that the pursuit was becoming, you know, the the depth in the pursuit in terms of the performances, is that because now these days there are more paracyclists who are specialising in the track versus or specialising in the road? Is You know, because 2016 still there was pretty much all the riders were doing both, but it seems as though increasingly there is more specialization because they are two different physiological events aren't they yeah i mean that is definitely a thing that happens broadly in paracycling for sure i honestly think though that the professionalization of the sport been a more of a contributing factor Mm -hmm. Um, more guys are able to make their entire living you know doing the sport i'm not in that position but you know, internationally, there a lot of those guys. That's riding their bike is pretty much all they do. Mm. You know, and more power to them. That and like track cycling in general, even in able-bodied, has uh, has been progressing as well and evolving regularly. Guys are doing times that even a couple of years ago, I was thought these times would never be beaten. Mm. You know, the old world record in the pursuit set by Jack Bowbridge of Australia, you know, yep. that, four, that 410, that was thought of as like, that's insurmountable for years. And now guys are regularly beating that. And mm. Philip Ogana just went 359. Wow. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah, it seems to be a whole scale sort of shift yeah. in terms of those speeds. Yep. So can you tell us how your impairment actually affects you on the bike? Yeah, so my biggest issue with my arm is controlling the bike, especially when we're talking about the standing start of my race, the kilo. I have actually pretty good grip, Mm -hmm. but my shoulder stability is not very good. Overall strength is not very good. I can't really pull. The standing start is actually a pretty technical Mm -hmm. skill, and to do it, does require a lot of upper body that I just don't have. (laughs) So that's been a challenge for me since I started in para. And then once I get going, I'm pretty good for the most part, except that in my left arm, there's actually some, I'm not sure what to call it, but lack of mobility that essentially my left arm is constantly pointing the bike to the left or to the right once I'm in the arrow position. So my right arm has to fight that force while I steer the bike. (laughs) That's the, uh, yeah. If you didn't have enough to focus on leg-wise and (laughs) breathing-wise. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's not something I actively think about a whole lot anymore, but it's Mm -hmm. definitely one of those things that, like, there's a very specific order of operations in the way that I do things because of the things I have to deal with in terms of how you get into the aero position and yeah and, exactly yeah. Mm-hmm. and even to this day like getting in transitioning into the aero position is not as straightforward as you think because yeah. of that mobility restriction and sometimes it just it just feels like i'm you know just rolling the dice hoping that my elbow goes in <laughs> yeah so. Yeah, and and some of the tracks are a little bit different in terms of how long I remember you telling me in Tokyo that where you actually start that transition is a little bit different to where you would do if you're at Carson because the the tracks are shaped differently. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Carson, for anybody that doesn't know, that's really the only indoor wood 250 in the United States. And it's got a very squished shape. 
So mm-hmm. it's much more shaped like a hot dog than a hamburger. Yep. And most most tracks, they're they're all oval, but they're more hamburger-like than the hot dog, with longer turns and shorter straightaways. Mm. And in Los Angeles and Carson, you have all the time in the world to figure out where you're going to transition. Uh-huh. But um, shorter track or those tracks with the shorter straightaways, it's you have to be much more decisive and calculated. Uh-huh. Cool. And so can you tell us how your training has changed and, and what you've done specifically? Like what are the things that you've had to work on the most in terms of that transition to being a more kilo specialist? Biggest thing is probably just changing my physique over time. <laughs> when I started as a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed roadie, I think I moved to the training center in 2014 weighing 150 pounds. So that's about, what, 68 kilos. And then I think it was kind of light for me. I think I ended up settling in at about 160 um, as a road rider. Mm-hmm. When I started focusing on track in 2018, my body went up to about 175, mm. so about 80 kilos. Yep. And then once COVID hit and everything got delayed, it's like, well, I've got nothing but time on my hands. I'm going all in on transitioning to being a sprinter. Yep. So I ended up coming out of COVID, I think, at 190 pounds. Wow. Yep. And then most recently... Before this track championships, I was 195. So I put on about 20 kilos since I started. um, And and that's pretty much 20 kilos of muscle mass. So your body fat levels haven't changed that much? No, not significantly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the weight that I started putting on during COVID was less ideal or less lean. I mean, it was still mostly muscle, but it wasn't Mm -hmm. quite as clean of weight as it is now. Mm-hmm. And, and how much has your power output changed with that? Pretty significantly. I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, my peak power this year on the white bike training that we've done just completely dwarfs the power that I've ever done previously mm-hmm. by about, you know, three or 400 watts wow. you know, as, a peak, as a peak power, which... Yeah. Which, I mean, once I started doing that, I was like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All this extra weight is worth it, even though I feel a bit, bit yeah, yeah. sort of walking around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, by that time, I'd leaned out again. And actually, once I started working with Marta, things started getting a lot better for me nutritionally and then with body composition and just things were going on the up since that yeah. happened. Okay. No, it was it was good. The power output, peak power went up quite significantly. The duration power for like minute long power, that had gone up, not necessarily as a direct correlation, I think, to body weight. But when we're talking about kilo and actually getting time, it's not necessarily like the power, it's the speed, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's getting up to speed. And there is power involved in that, but a lot of it is technique and it's really a lot of strength base. Mm-hmm. So just my goal wasn't necessarily like, oh, I need to get bigger to get faster. It's I need to get stronger, stronger. to get faster. Okay. And that's that's where I've seen the most gains recently, especially when the start is just getting stronger, more stable, getting as much function out of what I have as possible. Mm. And so give us a rough idea of what training looked like this like in say in the couple of months leading into world champs. How many track sessions, how many gym sessions? So I do three track sessions a week mm-hmm. and three gym sessions a week. Mm-hmm. And then some supplemental watt bike sessions in and around all that. Mm-hmm. But most of my I, I I do a lot of double days, especially leading up to Worlds this year. Um, mm-hmm. I actually switched to a new coach this year, Jenny Reed, and mm-hmm. that's been nothing but good for me. She's an amazing coach. Her, her approach is very different to what I've done in the past, what I'm okay. used to, but I I just went with it. <laughs> so she had me doing a lot of double days, mm-hmm. so training in the gym in the morning and then training the track in the afternoon. Or, you know, training the gym in the morning and the watt bike. And then a lot more days of recovery mm-hmm. in between. So okay. Never, I've never had so much recovery. <laughs> and But that obviously has helped in terms of being able to 
to really push some of that actual strength and ability oh. to transfer you know what you're doing into a, a meaningful outcome absolutely and part of that is just it's taken me some time just to um i mean part of my transition to becoming a track sprint more specialist from an endurance rider is not only like developing my body to be able to do that stuff but also just conceptualizing how to put out as much as you can in a short amount of amount of time as possible how to hurt yourself as much as possible and it's it's a really awesome part of the sport just to push yourself like that Mm. (laughs) i think it's awesome but it's really like you just take whatever your coach is giving you or at least i take whatever my coach gives me and i kind of think about like how much can i turn myself inside out in whatever duration this is mm-hmm. you know and that does damage the body if you do it appropriately and that's why the you extra need to recover recovery is more. important yep yeah exactly yep. so on days that we go on that we go hard we go really hard yep. and the days that we don't we just recover and so does your food intake look quite different on a a training day where you've got a double day versus that recovery day or is it actually you know somewhat similar just tweaked around training sessions i'd say it's more tweaked more i feel like the eating that i do in lighter days is also fueling my next day so that i you know have the energy to do it so i don't Mm -hmm. really change massively day to day i will intuitively eat a little bit more you know if it's more what i'm doing in training if i'm doing longer efforts that you know if i'm training more kilo stuff or even 500 stuff versus just doing quarter lap starts Mm -hmm. you know it's it's a little bit different demand on my body Mm -hmm. so once i start doing longer intense efforts then i'll start to eat a little bit more Mm -hmm. uh, just because i i just noticed that if i didn't i just would have a harder time sleeping at night Um, Mm -hmm. i would have a harder time even just like my central nervous system would have a harder time coming down after training. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it, it was noticeable uh, yep. the link between recovery and calories. Yeah. Okay. So can you give us a rough idea on what, what you'd eat on a double training day? Like if you started with first thing in the morning, just run us through what a, what your intake would look like. Yeah. So on double days, I have to get up pretty early. So I just keep food prep pretty simple i typically would eat like a bowl of muesli or shredded wheat cereal you know and i'm kind of a kind of a person that i can eat the same thing all the time and i get sick of it (laughs) and i tend to do that because it's just easier i know variety is good but also (laughs) like not having to not having to overthink it when you're juggling yeah 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 exactly (laughs) exactly so I have like a bowl of cereal, like shredded wheat is mm-hmm. my thing that I do recently. But I, you know, I went, I was on uh, using muesli for years, you know. Mm-hmm. So definitely have some form of carbohydrate. And then if I can, I'll make eggs in the morning. But if I can't, I'll just uh, have some yogurt to get the protein in. Mm-hmm. I try, especially on the double days where at the get up early, I try to get a little bit more sugar um, into my body than I would otherwise because I don't really like sweet flavored yogurt too much but I will do that on days that I have to get up and Mm -hmm. have to get things done you know it's just like yeah it's just more sugar I I just understand understandably I need it yep yeah it's fuel yep Yep. exactly so Mm -hmm. that's what I would do for breakfast and then on double days, pretty much after every workout, whether it's gym or the track, I'll have a recovery shake prepared that mm-hmm. I made the day before. I found that preparation is key for that because I I do not operate efficiently in the morning. Mm-hmm. So I have to take care of myself the night before, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. But yeah, I just do a quick protein shake, you know, just a scoop of protein, a banana, some berries. I, I prefer using Ripple for that pea protein instead of just regular milk. Just more the texture is a little bit thicker. And then depending on what workout I was doing, I might add a little bit extra carbohydrate in some form or another. If it's a bike workout, I might add a little more carbohydrate for my recovery yep. than I would for the gym. And then my lunch, I pretty much keep the same. Make myself a 
pastrami sandwich with sauerkraut mustard so pretty simple Mm -hmm. um but it's 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 basic but i like it and i can do it and it gets me what i need and then i also have uh i make a bowl of ramen Mm -hmm. uh, packaged ramen not the super cheap stuff but some good some good ramen i I learned in japan that like Mm -hmm. you can you can get some actually good packaged ramen and that's what i started getting so that's basically my lunch that i have and when training gets more uh intense with the duration i'll do two sandwiches Mm -hmm. on those days double days but for the most part i'll just do a sandwich and i basically kind of gauge how i feel you know i'm like if I'm eating enough at the end of, if I'm basically eating enough, I feel like I can get some good sleep. If I eat too much, especially at lunchtime, I can have negative effects around mm. track training. So I just kind of like just gauge it that way, essentially. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Marta has encouraged me to snack a little bit more. Um, so I started I have started doing that sometimes on days that I don't have double days I might make a shake throw a ton of spinach in it Mm -hmm. you know things like that just to have something and I've learned to actually keep a bunch of uh, just bars handy I like I'm not huge on bars because I think when I was a roadie I just had one too many bars So I'm not huge on bars, but I have learned the value of just keeping a bar stashed in every single bag that I have. So my work bag, my gym bag, my track bag, <laughs> the just cow. having options. Yeah, yeah, just having options available so that like, if I feel like, oh, I need something, I just have something I can go to real quick and yep. it's always going to be there. So Yep. And then do you know? Dinner, I just kind of, that's the one meal that I don't do strictly the same thing mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, all the time. And yeah, I just it's just sort of just trying to get enough, you know. Yeah. And my, I guess my approach is has evolved into I try to get enough earlier in the day that by the end of the day, I don't feel famished mm-hmm. and I'm not at a risk of just like overeating, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I try. I try to just go in, in into dinner in a better position than than I had yep. previously. And like I, like I said, that's a lot of trial and error and making mistakes and mm. and whatnot. And do you have another snack between dinner and the time you go to bed? Generally, I do. I have uh, a bit of yogurt, Greek yogurt, plain yogurt mixed with some dried cherries, tart mm-hmm. cherries. Yep. So. It's a, it's a good little snack for me. And, you know, and again, sometimes if I feel like if it's, if I am doing more, maybe endurance training, I might mix in some oats, something Mm -hmm. like that, some loose leaf. But the main, the main thing is just getting a little bit of protein and a little bit of that tart cherry juice or cherry flavor. Yep. And so how much did you have to focus on nutrition in order to get that extra weight and muscle mass on? Was that something that, came naturally to you or did you actually have to kind of really put some some heavy brain work into it early on in order to make sure that you ate enough so that did not come naturally whatsoever I actually kind of like with food and things like that like I just feel like you know you're used to eating what you're used to eating and if I have to eat more I'm kind of just like well what do I what do I eat more? Mm-hmm. What, what, what do I eat? You know, yeah. if I have to eat more. So that took some figuring out and like, it was a really hard transition if I'm being completely honest, like when COVID started, mm-hmm. it's because, you know, that was the most focused I'd ever been on the gym mm-hmm. and I didn't have access to training at the training center, at the track. At that time, things were closed. You mm-hmm. know, I could go ride my bike for a little bit, but that wasn't really the focus. And it wasn't really like, I can't really train on a road bike to the same degree of intensity as I can on the track. So there's just not a real good substitute that was available as much as I would, you know, try. Mm -hmm. But I did have a really hard time just even figuring out what do I eat, you know? So I think I'd made the error of eating too much protein and not enough carbohydrate yep you know so because you think okay yeah because yeah yeah, that's what that's what you hear about when people talk about putting on muscle masses oh you've got to eat enough protein but yeah talk about fueling the the training to actually create that muscle stress in the first place right right you respond to 
Right, right. And at first, I mean, just eat up in the protein massively, like that was productive as far as putting muscle on. And it wasn't really holding me back in bike training because, like I said, I couldn't really train on the bike as effectively without the track, Yeah. you know, or at least the kind of training that, that I do. So I did put on mass and yeah, it was good. My strength had increased exponentially, you know, I was doing things that I had never even contemplating being able to do under a, a barbell. It was awesome. <laughs> but then at a certain point, you know, let's flash forward into 2021, we were training again on the track and I was having a really hard time, you know, even tail end of 2020, I was having a really hard time recovering from hard track workouts. Like I would do hard efforts and my heart rate would just continue to stay you know elevated it wouldn't come down and initially i was just like well maybe i've just you know lost my aerobic endurance from focusing on strength training and whatnot but i hadn't like given up aerobic training and it, it was just something i kind of lived with you know mm. but then when the usopc hired marta to work with us mm. I'd contacted her, I'd reached out to her about this issue that I was having. And she was amazing. She was like so sweet, but she basically told me, you're not eating enough carbs. <laughs> you know, it was a really nice way that she told me, <laughs> but she told me I wasn't getting enough carbs and possibly getting too much protein. Yeah. So I took the recommendations that she made to heart, reduced the protein I you know, started eating more carbohydrate and that issue that I was having with my heart rate not coming down, that basically just went away. Mm. Um, I was recovering a lot better between my bike workouts and, you know, within the workout. And yeah. I was like, oh, okay, this is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> now my eyes are, my eyes are now open. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. And you've had, yeah, phenomenal kind of, and it's continuing. Yeah, like obviously you're getting faster and, and still building strength and it's been Yeah, it's been, been good. a learning process, just learning myself, giving my coach an opportunity to learn me. And just mm. every time that we have, you know, a competition or something that we're building to, we just go at it full speed. And then when we're done, we reevaluate, you know, what went well, what didn't, what could, mm. what was on the right track or what could be a little bit better and just make these fine adjustments until I get to where I'm at now. And I'm looking forward to making another set of adjustments moving forward. Cool. Awesome. You're also balancing full-time work with all of this. The work that you do is about accessibility, sort of planning. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. I don't work full-time. I work part-time. Okay. Yep. But my job is great about allowing me to pursue um, cycling. You know, it's it's one of those things that may, possibly like when I started working there, I came with this expectation because, you know, I had been doing cycling, but they've been nothing but supportive mm -hmm. of me for, you know, chasing after my goals. Yeah. So yeah, what I do is I actually work at what is called the Rocky Mountain ADA Center as in the Americans with Disabilities Act. There are 10 centers around the United States and we have a multi-state, each center has a multi-state region. We have a six-state region, which is Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, North and South Dakota, and Montana. Mm -hmm. And essentially what we do is we help uh, to implement the Americans with Disabilities Act by disseminating information. Mm -hmm. We don't actually intervene in any way when someone has an issue. But the thing about it is like the ADA itself is a very complicated law, mm. extraordinarily complicated. And we've been trained just to understand it inside and out. And everybody that I work with, we all focus on a couple aspects of the ADA so that we mm -hmm. can confidently say that we are experts in this aspect of physical, you know, of access of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Part of what I do is focus on the physical access aspects. Mm -hmm. So I work a lot with architects that need to understand the nuance of how to interpret what the requirements are in different mm -hmm. scenarios and things like that. So it's really fulfilling work because I do feel it does have an impact on people with disabilities because it just helps make the world 
a little bit more accessible than it was the day before, mm. you know. And once yep. that access is there, uh, the opportunity to participate, you know, the sky's limitless. Mm. And it's, it's just a really important thing for all people to have is just the opportunity to participate in life. And so do, as a result of that, do you sometimes have to cover your eyes when you go around other countries and have a look at <laughs> uh, and see what accessibility looks like in uh, different parts of the world? Yes and no. <laughs> Actually, yeah, yes. And the, like, I understand like there's a lot of the world that, you know, predates people even considering people with disabilities, you know, most of Europe <laughs> or like historical aspects, any historical building or what we would consider historic buildings, you know, a historic building here is 30 years old. Uh, <laughs> same, same in Australia. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like there's very little that can be done about all these structures that were built, you know, and all these streets that just are historically cobblestone and whatnot mm. but at the same time i've actually been really impressed with accessibility that i've seen around the world because it's not something that i can turn a blind eye to it's something i just notice it's part of my job to know these things and i just see things that like yeah that's not right <laughs> you know <laughs> and it's uh i'm gonna steal a line from a coworker of mine and that it's not if uh, a building is accessible or not it's how long is it going to take me to, f to figure out what's wrong with it <laughs> you know um, yep. Yep. so that's basically it and more often than not and even in brand new structures I can find something that's done wrong pretty quickly but with other countries they have different standards different ways of doing things and i have an appreciation for it you know um just a couple of things i can think of off the top of my head is that getting around the airport and the train station in japan they have uh, these directional pavers that you can follow with a cane you know if you're blind you can get around a little bit awesome. easier than you can in the united states where that's not a requirement in rio i noticed a uh, shopping mall right next to our hotel they actually had uh, painted lanes in the in the um, parking lot designated for people with disabilities to travel, you know, just so they don't have to, you know, fend for themselves. Or it's at least understood that, like, you're sharing these traffic lanes with people that have limited mobility, mm. you know. Mm. Uh, that's something that's not required in the United States. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. You would think that, you know, maybe Rio would be, or Brazil might be a little bit further behind the United States and thinking... Mm accessible terms like that but they're a little bit i don't know if i want to say ahead but just differently considered mm. you know it's just like oh like that's a that's something that we're not they're doing that we're not you know awesome. and I, that's something i notice about a lot of countries is that they generally do make considerations and generally try to do what they can it's yeah. just they're coming at it from a different different perspective mm. cool well chris i think we've taken up a lot of your time what is one of the big things that you've learned in this journey so far? Overall, in the journey so far, I think what I cherish more than anything are the people that I've come across, uh, the relationships I've made, whether they be with teammates, with staff, or with my competitors from other countries. Mm -hmm. That's what leaves a more meaningful impression on me than any medal I've ever earned. <laughs> You know, I've I've got I've literally got a box of medals that I just I added one a couple or I added just one more to uh, earlier today, and it's nice. You know, it's it's a nice thing to look at, but as far as being actually meaningful, not as much as seeing people that you know I haven't seen. You know, my competitor from Brazil. <laughs> you know, when I see him and he's, he's like the interaction that we have, we don't speak a whole lot because I don't speak any Portuguese and he speaks limited English, you know, that interaction it means a lot to me. The same with the Colombians, mm. you know, it's the same with uh, the Dutch guys. <laughs> it's the same. It really so there's with a any lot guy. of co camaraderie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, that means, that intrinsically means a lot more to me than anything else. Mm. What would come after that, I think, would just be the personal satisfaction from pushing myself on my bike. You know, and that's part of what I'm what I'm doing is I'm just trying to find, you know, how fast can I get? How fast can I make this bike go? And I don't 
think I'm near my limit yet. And that's kind of what fuels me that's, to that's keep. exciting. It is. It, mm -hmm. it is really exciting. And that's what part of what fuels me is this like curiosity of like, what can I do, you know, when mm -hmm. everything is right. And then it's reverse engineering. Well, what is right? And that's, you know, that's where all the coaching comes in. That's where all the nutrition comes in. And yeah. incidentally enough, that's a lot of where all the interaction with people comes in too. So yeah. it, it's a nice thing that kind of feeds itself. Cool. Any recommendations that you'd have for people who may be contemplating becoming a para-athlete? I mean, you, you came in quite late, I guess, in some mm -hmm. ways, and there are a lot of, of para-athletes who come into sport older than you know perhaps in the able-bodied arena usually they've been mm -hmm. athletes for life any specific recommendations you'd have for them yeah one would be to do it for the right reasons make sure that you love your sport <laughs> so i've come across some people that like the idea of being an athlete more than they like their sport i mean this every sport is developing and low-hanging fruit opportunities are getting fewer and fewer. Mm. Um, it's getting harder to make an impact in the sport without actually loving what you're doing. So yeah. that would first and for foremost be my advice is just to be in touch with that. Um, and secondly, would just to make sure that you're, whatever system that you're operating in, that you are making the system work for you. And I'm not advocating just using the system for your own purposes more so just being getting out of it what you need out of it while you're giving you know what you're expected to give you mm -hmm. know an example would be myself and us paracycling you know part of my job during the quad is to help the team amass points for the games and then to go to the games and succeed you know and i accept that responsibility but at the same time I'm also using that system to get to do things that I want to do, like pursue sport to the degree that I want to pursue it. I'm um, mm -hmm. using it to see the world, which is a big part of what I want to do um, mm -hmm. with parasport. You know, it's, it's this very um, symbiotic relationship where I'm definitely getting what out of it what I want while I'm putting yep. into it what's expected of me. Yep. Cool. What about any specific recommendations that you have for practitioners, for example, or for coaches who are working with para-athletes? For practitioners, I would just say to have a little more, maybe be a little bit more humble about what you think you know as compared to what your athletes are telling you. Mm -hmm. I've worked with a lot of this is more strength and conditioning than uh, nutrition, mm. but I've worked with a lot of strength coaches that would hear me explain what I'm working with, but not really understand mm. what I'm working with and then place expectations on me that are, that I really couldn't, yeah, unrealistic yeah. to fulfill. And it was not out of malice, not out of anything negative, but it just was what it was. They just... Mm came from a background where they think, okay, this is what you do and didn't really consider like, well, this is what I'm working with. It doesn't mm. really fit with that paradigm that you're familiar with. Yeah. That would be my best piece of advice to work with any para-athlete, just because every disability is going to be unique. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, my disability doesn't really play a whole lot of interference at least with my nutrition but there are disabilities that do you mm. know and when you compound disability with parasport there's not a whole lot of base of knowledge and you kind of have to figure that out and if you're yeah. unwilling to understand that you have to figure it out then yeah. you're not really going to be performing your job to the degree that you probably could yep perfect well chris time to let you go Speaking of food, you probably need to go eat at some point soon. So before you go, one last question. What is your favorite food? Oh, what's my favorite food? That's a hard one because it just depends on what mood I'm in. <laughs> I would say it's either, I'm going to give you a genre of either Thai food or Indian food. Uh -huh. Okay. <laughs> like, yep. Yeah, I can Spice, go for... Something spicy? Yes. Or is it more the flavor? I love the flavor, but I also appreciate spicy food. Sometimes more than the spicy food loves me, but <laughs> but yeah, I, I do I do appreciate some good spicy food. Cool, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, 
for your knowledge and and just I guess you're you've just got such a measured thoughtful approach to your sport and and obviously that comes from being a musician and and having to become a specialist in an area before then so I think you've brought a huge skill set into a different paradigm and you've you've really made the most of it and are continuing to make the most of it and and continuing to push yourself so I'm excited to see what comes for the next few years and let's hope no more broken bones huh right Thank you, Liz. <laughs> Chris has done a great job of setting a long-term plan into place and having the patience to continually apply himself towards that plan. And he's been really good at adapting and looking for ways of really optimising his ability to continue to progress in his sport. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please share it with your friends and family. And if you have any feedback, please leave it on our website. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Dr. Chris Irwin, a researcher at Griffith University, around the topic of alcohol and athletes.